morning, Southbridge. Thanks for making it out today, making it through the rain, and you didn't melt, and that's pretty amazing. Uh, so we're glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us today, um, thanks for being so brave. And in spite of weather reports and all those kinds of things, come and check out this church. And uh, maybe this will be the church home for you. We'd love to be able to connect with you in some way. If you're open to that, if you want to just slide out today, we realize that the, just being here today might be a step for you. But for those of you who are willing to make yourself known, uh, we put a little card in the worship program. We just ask you to fill that out, and we'll pray for you this week. And if we can do anything for you, you can let us know that on the card as well. But what we really love to hear from you is, how did you hear about us as a church? Like, how did you know there was a church meeting at this movie theater? Did someone invite you? Did you know somebody else went here? Was there a sign? Or what was it? Um, that, that got you here so we can invite more people that way. So if you'd fill that out on that connection card that's in your worship program, take it out at the first time guest kiosk on your way out. What we do with that card is also anytime one of those cards gets turned in, we give a donation to a ministry called Women at Risk International that rescues people out of human trafficking. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but there are more slaves in the world today. Uh, than there have ever been in human history. And one of the primary things that those slaves are used for, in addition to labor, is sex slavery. And this ministry focused specifically on that. And they also try, like our church tries to connect people to Jesus for life change. They rescue these women out of that and then try to connect them to Jesus for life change. Many of them place their faith in Jesus Christ. And you fill that card out today, and uh, you can make a difference in somebody's life by turning that in. Um, So we'd love it if you would just take a couple moments and do that. We've got some gifts to give you as a result as well. And uh, then things that are happening at our church, you can look in the worship program and see some of that stuff. Uh, But one of the things is, today we're wrapping up our series. We've been in the book of Habakkuk. Next week we're going to start a new series. I'll give you a promo for uh, Philippians. And so if you want to start reading, we're going to cover the first 11 verses in Philippians. And for those of you who've been with us through Habakkuk, What you're going to find out when we start studying Philippians, it's like a contrast, but also a continuation of the book of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk is dark and difficult things are taking place. And and, uh, Philippians is about joy, which the end of Habakkuk we're going to get to today. And we're going to see how some of those flow together. But it's really like somebody turned the lights on when you get to Philippians because it's all about joy. And my hope for you as a church is that and individually... As, they, as we go through the book of Philippians, you'll have greater joy than you've ever had in your life, and you'll know what that source of joy is, and you'll have a greater intimacy with Jesus Christ um, as a result of our time. The book of Philippians is not a long book either, um, just a little bit longer than Habakkuk. We'll take a little bit longer to go through it, though. And so today we're going to wrap up in uh, Habakkuk. Let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll open up to Habakkuk chapter 3. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, get into your word this morning. And to be together, I pray that you'd connect people, old friends, with one another. I know some people have been sick and get to come back today, and some people aren't here because of the weather or whatever reasons. Um, you know exactly who's supposed to be here and how we're supposed to bump into each other. And whether we're praying together or confessing sin with one another or carrying each other's burdens or whatever you desire for us to do, I pray in this moment when we open up your words, we study together, that you'd meet with us, that you'd speak to us, you'd reveal yourself. I pray you give me the exact words for those that will hear these words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to try and cover the whole last part of the book here, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, and today's message is titled, A Righteous Response to a Terrible Situation. A righteous response, because today we're going to see how Habakkuk responded, because we know that it's terrible. We know the bad stuff that's been going, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, and all the bad things that are taking place, but today we see how Habakkuk responds. And think about responses. You ever get a response that you weren't expecting? You tell somebody good news and they seem sad. You tell somebody bad news and they laugh or seem happy. And you get a response that you weren't anticipating taking place. Last week I I shared with the second service that I was sick um, during the service, so I kind of used the excuse I was a little bit out of it. I was out in the lobby and I was kind of watching people hang out with each other. I usually enjoy getting to know people and bumping into folks and meeting new people. Um, But I was just kind of watching everybody do it. And this young lady came walking up to me I'd never met before out in the lobby. And I was pretty confident she was pregnant when she walked up to me. 
And uh, as we talked for about, you know, a minute or so, I said, so when is your date? To which she responded to me, date for what? And I just froze. I was like a deer in the headlights. It's just like, I am a moron. I've done this before in my life. How did I do this again? Why are you such an idiot? Just blame it on cough syrup, even though you didn't drink any, whatever. And so I'm just like thinking about what to happen. Then she says, oh, my date for like maternity leave? Like then she bailed me out. Like I don't even know if she put me out there. But then she bailed me out. She said, I was like, but that wasn't the response I was expecting. You ever give responses that you're not expecting to happen? You ever watch the world and just take observations in of different areas of the world and how people respond to different things? You ever watch sports and think to yourself, you didn't know that was a foul? Did you watch a basketball game and you think to yourself, you're like, you really, because sometimes those guys, when they foul, you'd think they'd never played basketball before. What happened? Why are they stopping the game? Like, what's going on? Me? No. And then the coaches are worse. Ever watch the coaches? I talked to my friend Jim Henry. He's a Duke fan over here. You ever watch Coach K? When he, the foul gets called on his team, especially if it's at camera, because it doesn't happen very often, fouls get called there. But if a foul gets called on his team at camera, it's like you'd think his Adam's apple is about to pop out of his eyeball. Like he's so mad at that moment that it could pop. How could you possibly think we would do something wrong? You know what I'd love to see one time? It's Coach K or some veteran coach who's been coaching for a long time. At the end of a game, be like, you know what? That was a great call against our team. I would, I'd coach our kids to cheat that way. I mean, to play that way. I didn't think they'd ever call it. But good job, ref. Kind of pat him on the butt on the way out. Like, you never see that response. Or think about the response. So it snowed this week. As you saw from the announcements, our reporter, Carrie, was able to share with you. And you're probably trapped in your house because you didn't have power. Or you're out playing and building igloos, all kinds of different stuff people do. Do you think about the responses to snow? And I'm not just going to talk like, you know, I know I'm a Yankee and all that kind of business. I've lived in the South for 15 years. I'm not going to be a snotty Yankee. I totally understand why it gets crazy. We don't ever get snow. So when it does snow, it's the apocalypse. I get it. But here's what I don't understand. What is the deal with bread and milk? Like, like we all joke about bread and milk. But do you, people really buy all that stuff. I went to the store on Wednesday night. I was, I was legitimately going to the store on Wednesday night. And we really were going to buy milk because, like, we didn't have any in our fridge. Not because it was going to snow the next day. And, and I got a picture. Food Lion on Strickland Road. Right here. This isn't from the internet. That's the milk shelf right there. It's gone. And then the bread aisle, somebody put on my Facebook page, you didn't mention the bread. And they had a picture of the bread aisle. I saw a guy from our church while I was there, one of my buddies on the worship team. I said, what's the deal? He said, everybody's making milk sandwiches. (laughs) Somebody said snow cream. I didn't know that was a real thing. Apparently that's a, a real thing. Here's what I don't understand. If you're in survival mode, why aren't you buying orange juice and water? Why milk? You want cottage cheese in a couple days? Like everybody's buying milk and it makes sense to me. Lots of responses don't make sense if you start thinking through life, but there's none There's none that makes less sense than what we're commanded to do in the Bible as followers of Jesus Christ when difficult times come. Have you ever seen this in the book of James? In James chapter 1, it says this, Consider it pure joy or rejoice. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, my fellow followers of Jesus, my brothers, whenever you, anytime you face trials, Of all the different variety of trials, various trials, some translations say, the NIV says here, many kinds of trials. So that means doctor's type trials, when the doctor gives you a bad diagnosis. It means difficult trials at work. It means difficult trials in your home. It means difficult, the kind of trials that you might get from the economy, the different kinds of trials that might happen to someone you love. All the different kinds of trials, here's what you're going to do. Rejoice. Which sounds great. I thought about this as I was reading it this week um, from a skeptic's point of view. I know there's several people that come to our church that are skeptics. You come to church for whatever reason, uh, maybe checking stuff out. Some people are doing somebody else a favor or whatever, all the different kinds of things. Totally understand that. If I'm a skeptic and I read this verse, here's what I think. It's fine that you believe that. 
You can put it in your book, but no one does that. No one actually responds this way to trials. And the question for us as believers is, why not? Why don't we? Habakkuk does in our book. It's a puzzling response, but it's the righteous response to a terrible situation. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3 today, and we're going to look at it. We get the response. If you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, let me just give you a flow of how Habakkuk has gone so far. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he just starts off, terrible situations going on, sin's running rampant, um, bad things are taking place, and he's going, God, where are you? I call out to you, and you don't listen. I cry for help, and you don't respond. It's like you just sit by and you watch bad stuff happen. God, if you're good, then why does bad stuff happen? If you're loving, this doesn't seem very loving, is what he's saying. Then verse 5, God interacts with him. and says to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something in your day, in your lifetime, Habakkuk, that even if I told you about it, your little human brain would blow out of your head. You can't get it. You will not understand it. And then he starts to tell him. Then verse 13, Habakkuk says, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I don't like it. And so he starts to complain back. Then in chapter 2, God gives us the key to the answer, the climax of the book. In verse 4, when he says, the righteous will live by faith. Are you going to trust me? I'm going to be God. You be a human. Are you going to trust me? And the righteous will live by faith. The righteous people, by the way, we pointed out last week, are not people that are good people. Righteous people are sinners who trust in the goodness of Christ And it's by faith, and faith becomes a vehicle, uh, a means, uh, a vessel through which God blesses us. When we take our faith and stop trusting in ourselves and our accomplishments and being a good person and trying to get our good that way or bad and just hoping to see what happens someday, which is called fatalism, doing all that kind of stuff and shift it to the cross of Jesus Christ. By faith, we're then seen as Christ's righteousness, and we live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And then when we get to the last part of chapter 2, are things that fight against our faith. And we saw those five things. And then at the end, it says, God says, the earth will be silent. Be silent, Habakkuk. And chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response to that. Now he's come to grips with the fact, God's going to be God. I've got to be me. Now what am I going to do? And chapter 3 of Habakkuk is really a psalm. It's his prayer. It's written to be sung, which you see by the, the scripts that are written just before and at the end of it. It says in chapter 3 and verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. On that really tough word to say right there. And that word is only, it appears one of the times, it appears in the Psalms, and it's probably a type of song. Uh, probably a dirge uh, or a song that has a regular drum beat, beat to it that's going, maybe the indie beats, like our drummer likes to drop every once in a while, just kind of playing through that. And then it's meant to be sung, and we'll take it in chunks. I'll just read you verse 2. It's the request here. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I heard you when you were speaking about what you were going to do. Verse 5. I heard you when I complained about it, and you said, no, this is what you're going to do. You're going to use these wicked Babylonians to discipline these people. They're living in sin, my people, which is going to include me, even if I wasn't sinning and part of this nation of Israel. I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. Think about past deliverances that God has done, and it's what he's going to talk about in verses 3 through 15. He says, renew them in our day, and our time make them known. In wrath, and so he's come to grips with, the wrath is going to happen. But in wrath, remember mercy. And so here we have Habakkuk crying out to God, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I know about your deeds. Please do them again. And I know you're going to discipline us. You've already told us that, and I ask you not to, but I know you're going to. But remember mercy. Well, Habakkuk's doing here is the very thing we have to do 
if we're ever going to rejoice in our trials, if we're going to respond in a righteous way to our terrible situation, what he's doing is he's turning to God. See, you must turn to, not away from, which is what some people choose, you must turn to God in your trials, in your difficulty, when the disaster comes, whenever that stuff's happening, if you're going to possibly have a righteous response to a terrible situation, you must turn to God, which is our first point today. And it's what we see Habakkuk do all through the book. That's how the book started. And it was rough and raw, but he was turning to God in the difficult situation, verses 1 through 4. And then God responds to him, says, here's some stuff, and you're not going to like what I'm going to say, and you're not even going to believe what I'm going to say. I'm going to take these wicked Babylonians, I'm going to judge my people, Israel, because it's their sin that's causing all these problems in the nation. And then Habakkuk doesn't like him. So what does he do? Verse 13, he turns to God again. He says, well, I don't like that. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't even seem consistent with your character. And you, you say you can't even look at evil, but then you're going to use these evil people. And then God says, you're going to have faith. In chapter 3, he does it again. He's turning to God. A lot of times we don't realize the battle that's taking place over our hearts in our difficult situations is over, whether we're going to turn to or turn away from God. It seems logical as a Christian. Like, of course we'd turn to God, right? That's not what everybody does. A lot of people, you turn to a different source of joy, a place you trust and escape to try and get away from the problems. Maybe it's one of those lies that we talked about last week, or our own self-security, other people, our money, our different things, our own glory, our own accomplishment. We turn to those things because that's where we get comfort. But if we're going to have a righteous response, we've got to turn to God. It's a battle you see in Job's life. If you've read the book of Job, the whole book hinges on what takes place in verses 6 through 12 in chapter 1, which is something Job doesn't even know is happening. And it's a spiritual conversation that took place between Satan and God. When Satan comes to God and says, the only reason Job loves you is because he has a contract with you. And the contract is, as long as you bless him, he's faithful to you. Let's take away some of the blessings and see how Job responds. God knows that Job actually finds his joy, finds his hope, finds his love from God himself, not from the kids, not from the businesses, not from the money. So God says, you can, you can take it. And from Job's perspective, all he sees is the tragedy. What's taking place is a battle. Is he going to turn to or going to turn away from God? And then one day he loses all of his businesses, all of his money, and ten kids in one day. In chapter 2, his wife says to him, curse God and die. Get this over with. Turn away from God. And you read the whole book of Job, and what ends up happening? It's not pretty. It's not all night. It's not just dancing around like, good, bad stuff's happening to me. I'm rejoicing in my trials. It gets messy. At the end of the day, what ends up happening is Job turns to God. We've got to turn to God. That's what Habakkuk does here. Look back at verse 2. What's he doing when he turns to, turns to God? He says, I've heard of your fame. He's praying. Lord, I've heard of your fame. The things that you've done in the past. I heard you when you were speaking too, and you're saying you're going to do things we don't believe. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day. That's his request. If you got one request before God, in the midst of your trial, what would it be? He's already asked God to take it away. It's not bad to say take it away. Have not because you ask not. Totally get that. He did that in chapter 1, but God said, no, I'm not going to take it away. What if God says, no, I'm not going to take it away? Then what are you going to request? He says, well, then God, do your work. In our time, make them known. In the wrath, in the midst of the difficulty, remember mercy. And what we see in verses 3 through 15, which we'll read in just a moment, he starts to review all these different deliverance moments from the past. The Exodus being a huge one, if you've read the Old Testament, when God leads his people out of Egyptian slavery and bondage, and they cross the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. He talks about those suns standing still, a victory when they're fighting, battling against the Canaanites, Joshua chapter 10. And you see these different deliverances. Here's the problem when we think about deliverances. We often think about the deliverance moment. 
And we don't think about the struggle leading up to that moment. Think about uh, Joseph, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. I was just thinking about him the other day. Joseph's a guy where we talk about how he went through difficulty, but we oftentimes focus in on at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, he ends up saying to his brothers, who are the people who sold him into slavery, first person human traffic that we saw in the Bible, goes to jail for a crime he didn't commit, but then ends up being the second in command in the nation. And then a famine comes on his people, and people are coming to him for food, and he gets to feed his brothers, the very people who sold him into slavery. He forgives them, and he says to them this famous line, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So God takes his bad stuff and uses it for good. And we focus in on that. It's a great story. What about all those years when Joseph was in jail? Was God at work then? What was happening then? And what about when he was falsely accused? And what about when he was beaten and sold into uh, slavery? What about all that stuff? We just kind of gloss over that. What about We talk about the deliverance and the Red Sea situation. They were in oppression for 400 years. That means whole generations didn't see deliverance. Whole generations struggled, cried out to God, are you there? Are you listening? Why is this bad stuff happening? Was God at work on that stuff? So we oftentimes we think about the deliverance, we ignore the struggle. There's always a struggle before the deliverance. Whenever there's a deliverance moment, there's always been a struggle before that. What about the struggle time? Is God at work in the struggle moments? It's like I was telling my wife the other day, we were, we were at the kitchen table. Every once in a while what happens to her is uh, she'll be out with our four girls and some nice older man or older woman will come up to them at the store and say, as a parent, cherish these days. <laughs> uh, and we always feel guilty when we hear that because cause we think to ourselves, well, we're, are we not, cher- we're not cherishing the day? Because what about the struggle? There's a struggle. And so what I said was, and you don't need to ask about the scenario that took place that prompted this conversation, but I said, hey, next time the wheels fall off at the Lear house um, and, you know, somebody spills something on the table and then they fight about who's spilling it and then the dog poops on the floor and, you know, somebody's gone and we just don't even know where they went during the meal and we start to elevate our volume, uh, pull out your phone and just start, start recording. The next time a lady comes up to you at the grocery store, pull the phone out and be like, these days? Do you remember these days? Did you have any of these days? What about the struggle? Because in the struggle, God's still work. In your wrath, remember mercy. In the midst of, because here's what's about to happen for Habakkuk, and he's going to talk about it at the end of the book. People are going to starve to death. He's going to watch women and children die. People are going to get their heads cut off. Habakkuk's probably going to die. It's going to be 600 miles from home, 70 years. He's not a young guy. If nothing else, he's, going to die. he's not going to see the deliverance. But he's saying here, but do your work, reveal your work. And so if you get to ask God to do anything in the midst of your struggle and he's not going to deliver you from the temporary circumstances, then what? What are you asking? And I think about our vision as a church. And we talk about Matthew 5.14. We let our lights shine before men. They'd see our good deeds. They glorify our fathers in heaven. And we want to be that city on a hill that's talked about in Matthew chapter 5, where the city's transformed, where Chapel Hill's transformed, Durham transformed, Raleigh's transformed. We see this place be different, and, and it would happen one life at a time. And so people would trust Christ, and addictions would be broken, and marriages would be reconciled, and people would walk in freedom from sin, and, and you'd start seeing our light shine as we try to live out the Christian life. And then people would glorify God as a result of seeing how we live and be drawn ultimately to God as a result of the things that are happening in this city. Would that be our goal? That'd be what we'd want to see happen. And so then I think about how does that happen? And to be honest with you, 
I think, well, it should go pretty smooth, right? Like we'll do weekends like Southbridge serves, like we do once a year, and go out and serve our community, and they'll see us serving them, and they'll glorify our fathers in heaven. And, and then we challenge our church, everybody to have a one, so everybody's a member, have one person you're praying, and they'll come to Christ and trying to share Christ with, and so then you share Christ with your one. Like we just had somebody last week writing in about their one, and um, that's that kind of deal. And then they'll trust Christ, right? And then they'll tell their family. And so that husband trusts Christ. He tells his wife and the kids and then the neighbors and and people start coming to Christ and and the the light shines, right? That's what I imagine. What if God does it a different way? We know he wants the vision to be accomplished, but he doesn't tell us the means by which it will happen. So what if God's plan is, instead of, oh, we'll be out serving or we'll be out telling somebody, instead of just that, what if he's going to allow terrible stuff to take place in our lives and then lost people get to watch and see how we respond? That'll be how our light shines before men. And they see our deeds that bring glory to our Father. What if that's how he does it? We have to turn to him if it's going to happen. And the question is really, where else are you going to turn? Nothing else is going to help. It's like Peter in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus has given some really tough teaching. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus' teaching is a lot different than what you'll t- sometimes see on late night TV preachers. You know, they'll tell you, you know, speak it into existence, proclaim your future. That's a bunch of garbage. It's not just positive thinking your way through life. He's not going to be delivered. Habakkuk's not going to be delivered. Job has more kids at the end of the book. They didn't replace the 10 kids that died. And so the don't worry, be happy message is really shallow. And it's not what Jesus preached. In John chapter 6, Jesus preached a message about following him. And it says that many of his disciples left. Disciples left. Not just crowds that were coming to be fed. People that were learners of his. People that have probably identified themselves as some kind of follower of his. Many of them left because he said, if you don't accept everything I'm teaching, you don't got it. And so they start leaving. And then he turns to his 12 disciples, one of which is going to betray him. And he knows that. It says it even in John chapter 6. And he looks at them and says, are you leaving too? Are you going to go? Peter responds. It's one of the highlights of Peter's life. Peter messes up all the time in the Bible. This is a highlight moment. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, there aren't any other options. He says, you have the words of eternal life. You're the only one that gives real life. Where else are we going to go? We've got to turn to God. Not just turn to God, though. Turn to God and focus on the cross, which is the next thing we see Habakkuk do in this passage. Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet, returns to God, and then he focuses on the cross of Christ. Look at it with me. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, he talks about all these past deliverances, and all the past deliverances foreshadow the ultimate deliverance, which comes at the cross, the pinnacle of human history. And he talks about it in this chapter. Verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from the Mount Paran, Selah. It's another word that we don't know what it means, really. Uh, the only other place it appears in the Bible are in the Psalms, songs that are being sung. Most people believe that it's a musical term. It might mean refrain, like re-sing what you just saw. It might mean, because the root word comes from uh, the idea of lifting up or exalting, it might mean that. If nothing else, it means this. Pause and think about what was just said. It's the time like when, you're, when we're singing a song here and uh, Jad or one of the musicians starts to do an, a musical interlude. Reflect on the lyrics we were just singing. Think about what the truth was and what was just said here in verse 3 would make the original readers think of um, Mount Sinai, which is where the Ten Commandments came. And God revealed himself. And he showed up. And if you remember at the end of that, they say, "Don't let Moses, you talk to us. We don't want that again because it was so terrifying. His glory covered the heavens, second part of verse 3. His praise filled the earth, thunder and smoke. 
His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand. Where his power was hidden. So very poetic language that he's referring back to other times when God's revealed himself. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps like an, an exodus with Pharaoh and the battle that took place there and all the plagues that took place. And Pharaoh kept saying, I'll turn to you. I'll turn to you. And his heart kept getting harder and he kept not turning. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and he made the nations tremble. His, his enemies were no match. He could shake the entire earth. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. And so here are these picture of mountains, picture of grandiosity. They melt before God. His ways are eternal. Habakkuk says, I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Then he asks these questions in verse 8. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? The way this is phrased in Hebrew implies the answer is no. He's not angry at the rivers. Was your wrath against the streams? No. Did you rage against the sea when you rode? With your horses and your victorious chariots? No. It wasn't the sea that he was upset with. You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Think about that. Pause and think about the power that's just been described. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. Like a pregnant woman writhing in pain. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still. It's an allusion to Joshua chapter 10. God delivering his people. In the heavens, at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lighting, lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. In verse 13, get this, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. Who's the anointed one? In the Old Testament, thinking backwards in the past, it was Moses, God's chosen guy to deliver the people. He was a foreshadowing of Christ. At the current time, the anointed ones would have been the anointed ones, Israel. But pointing forward, Habakkuk is a prophet, pointing forward, the ultimate anointed one is Christ. The focus on the cross. To save your anointed one, you crushed the leader of the lands of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. You can humble the proud, Babylonian leaders, Pharaoh, whoever, Satan. Think about that. With his own spear, you pierced his head. Genesis 3.15, you'll crush the serpent's head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. You delivered. You deliver, and all the deliverances are a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverance, which is the cross of Christ. And here's the deal. If you are going to have a righteous response in a terrible time, whatever your terrible time is, I don't know what all of them are. Some of you are going through difficult times right now. Hopefully God speaks to you. Some of you aren't right now. They will come. And I hope you take this message and you put it in your pocket as like a tool in your arsenal against the difficulties of life. If you're going to respond the way that God commands us to respond, expects us to respond, calls us to respond, then you've got to focus on the cross. Here's why. There's at least two reasons. First reason why you've got to focus on the cross is this. Think about what happened at the cross. It's the worst sin ever. The worst circumstances ever. The worst scenario ever. Religious leaders, teachers, chief priests, elders, they kill an innocent man. Not only did he never commit sin, and not only was he an innocent man, but he was God's own son. And so they kill him, they murder God. That's the worst situation ever. God gets murdered. And what does God do with that situation? He uses it for the best outcome ever. Your salvation. My salvation. So if you think about your situation, whatever the worst case scenario is that could happen in your life, if he can take the worst scenario in history 
and create the greatest outcome, the worst sin in history, create the greatest outcome, then what's the worst scenario in your life? And can he use that, ultimately redeem that for the greatest outcome? Well, what about here? Habakkuk's not going to receive deliverance from his temporary circumstances, the difficult things that are going to happen here. He's probably going to die. But ultimate deliverance, that's what the cross gives us. That's the second reason why you get to focus on the cross. First reason you get to focus on the cross because he takes the worst situation, creates the best outcome. The second reason is bigger than that. This is the ultimate reason. It's because the cross is where ultimate deliverance comes from. Not deliverance from circumstances, not deliverance from different scenarios, not deliverance from worst case scenario, not deliverance from terrible situation, deliverance from death, deliverance from sin, deliverance from Satan himself. Think about what happens at the cross. Jesus delivers us from death. How? By dying. He dies and then raises from the dead. That's the Easter story. We don't just celebrate it on Easter. That's the Christian story. There's always struggle and suffering before deliverance. And so he suffers. And so who do you look to? You look to the suffering one who suffered for you and then defeated death for you so that when you place your faith on him, the righteous will live by faith. Then that's through the channel of faith, God's righteousness is placed on you. Blessing. Not because you're righteous. Not because you're good. Because you trust in his goodness. How does that happen? Through the cross of Christ. Because you're delivered through death then. And then you can have eternal life, which is forever life. But it begins here and now. And you can live with eternal life, regardless of circumstances, here. So you're delivered from death. You're delivered from sin. What happens on the cross? And Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is God turning his back on his son? It's because he became your sin. And the darkness covers the earth. And Jesus Christ dies and pays the penalty for your sin. So he can deliver you from sin. That's the ultimate deliverance. And so he can give a death blow to Satan, your enemy. Talk about defeating the enemy in this passage. It's ultimately the anointed one, Jesus Christ, that's defeating the enemy, Satan, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you so that he can then provide a way so he can be the way, the truth, the life, so you can be reconciled to God. So then Satan's defeated because now you have access to God as a sinful person. That's... Why? You have to focus on the cross. Hebrews says it like this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, focus on the cross, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what's interesting? This is right after in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. You get all these faithful people. You know what ends up happening? It gets talked about that some of the people were super faithful. And this is a passage I'd love to see preached by late night TV preachers. And they got sawed in two and beheaded and killed for their faith. Do you know what they experienced? Ultimate deliverance because of the cross of Jesus Christ. They looked to a land that wasn't this place. It says the world was not worthy of them because they lived for a different place by faith. The righteous will live by faith and you live by faith by focusing on the cross. Turn to God, focus on the cross and that will give you the ability to respond by rejoicing regardless of the outcome. And that's our third point. To respond by rejoicing regardless of circumstances, regardless of how bad it is, it doesn't matter if it's the perfect circumstances, it doesn't matter if it's the worst circumstances, you can rejoice because your joy is not found in the circumstances. 
look at it. And this is the passage. This wraps up the whole book of Habakkuk. And this is the, this is the part that's crazy. This is the part that blows my mind. This is the passage. If you're just going to remember a part of the book, just remember this. Verses 16 through 19. Verse 16, we get a real picture. Habakkuk has gone through a process here. It's not like all of a sudden it's like, bad stuff happened? Yippee! No, he's gone through a process, and he talks about how bad it is. Verse 16, I heard. He's talking about he heard what God said back in verse 5. I'm going to do something. You wouldn't believe it. God could have said, and you're not going to like it. He said, I heard. I get it. My heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. And my legs trembled. He basically describes an anxiety attack. I didn't know what to do with it. Yet I will wait. It's a theme in Habakkuk. I want to wait on the Lord. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nations evading us. I believe that justice will come. You reap what you sow. And we saw that last week. And then verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud. The fig tree does not bear figs. And what we have in verse 17 is six conditional clauses hinging on the word though. And it's progressively worse. Though this happens, and though this happens, and though this happens, and though this happens, any one of the things, not terrible. All six of the things together, devastating. Look at what he says. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crops fails, and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. It's progressively worse and worse and worse. Figs, figs were a delicacy. Uh, somebody tells you you're not going to have any figs ever again in your life, you and I are probably going to, eh, whatever. Uh, they're going to go, ah, it's a delicacy. That's bad. It's inconvenience that it's gone. No grapes? Well, grapes are what they drink on a regular basis, and so it's not comfortable, but you're going you're gonna to make it. And no olives? Olive crop fails? A little bit tougher now because olives is where we get our oil that we use for all of our lighting, um, all of our cooking. And the fields produce no food. Some translations say the grain. That was the staple of the diet. That means people are going to starve to death. It's progressively worse. And there's no sheep used for lots of things, but a symbol of wealth. No cattle in the stalls used for labor and work. In other words, he's just said the, the worst situation takes place. So I'm going to watch women and children starve to death. And the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to cut people's heads off and do terrible things, gouge their eyes out, make them watch terrible circumstances. And it's torturous and it's horrible. Though all of that happens. And so you can think about whatever your worst case scenario is. Your spouse does something awful. Doctor tells you something terrible. Whatever it is that gets taken away from you. Could you say verse 18? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength, verse 19. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And so he says here, when the worst case scenario happens, I will rejoice. Now here's the problem for some of us. Some of us, when we think about this, um, we think about James chapter 1, rejoice in your trials, and we think, okay, when something bad happens, we're supposed to get excited about it. No one does that, okay? You don't just like, you get in a car accident and go, yes, all right, ah, good stuff's happening now. Mm. Think about you're driving on the ice this week and slide into somebody or somebody slides into you and 
You don't get out of your car going, oh, this is great. No, I know what's going to happen. Now I'm going to have to fight with my insurance company for a couple months. They're not going to give me the money that I need to fix my car. It'll be a little bit less than I actually need, and they're going to raise my rates. I'm probably going to get a ticket for being here, and uh, then this person's mad at me, and they think I'm a jerk. Hallelujah. That is not what's being talked about here. And that's not what's being talked about in James chapter 1. But a lot of times when we hear rejoice in your trials, that's what we think. Like, what kind of sadistic weirdo are you that you like bad stuff happening? No one does that. And that's not what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk is not rejoicing because of bad situations. He's rejoicing because of the Lord. Look at verse 18. It doesn't matter what happens, is what he's saying. It doesn't matter how good or how bad the situation is. I will rejoice not in bad circumstances. I will rejoice in the Lord. In case you didn't get it, I will be joyful. My joy is found in God, my Savior. The reason why a person of faith can rejoice in trials is because it doesn't matter what the trial is. You haven't touched their source of joy. I will rejoice, I will be joyful in God. And he can't be taken away. And he doesn't change. And he's still at work in the midst of the struggle. And so if you take away someone's source of joy, of course they're going to be devastated. And so if your source of joy is your wealth and you lose your money, that's devastating. If your source of joy is your spouse and you lose your spouse, that's devastating. If your source of joy is your kids, is a dream you have, is whatever temporary thing that could be on this earth, you've got a bad source of joy because it can be taken. If your source of joy is God, then no matter what happens in circumstances, you can rejoice because you still have your source of joy. So if my source of joy is my wife and I get in a car accident, it stinks I got in a car accident. That's going to cost money, and it's bad, and the car's broken, and I have to figure out how to get to work the next couple of days, but I still got my wife. If my source of joy is my wife, and all my money gets taken away, that's fine. I still got my wife. What if my wife gets taken away? Source of joy is gone. But what if my source of joy is God, and your wife gets taken away? Or whatever you'd fill in the blank with. Or your money gets taken away. Or your health gets taken away. Or your mind gets taken away. Your achievement gets taken away. Your reputation gets taken away. Your power gets taken away. Your self-made security gets taken away. Whatever your false idol is. But if it's God, you can say like Habakkuk, I'll be joyful. Because I still have my source of joy. It's God. See, a lot of people think that the reason that bad stuff happens is the reason to not believe in God. I was reading a book this week, uh, If God is Good, by Randy Alcorn. I've mentioned it to you before. It's a great book talking about when you're going through difficult times. And in that book, he's got one chapter. It's actually a case study on a guy named Bart Ehrman. Bart is a professor. Dr. Ehrman is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. He's a well-known atheist, religion professor. He claims that uh, he turned from the faith in Jesus Christ to atheism because God allows bad stuff to happen. He admits, not in his own life, but in the lives of other people. And he can't imagine how they have the, he talks about the concentration camps and, um, and uh, for the Jews on the Auschwitz and, and different places that were taking place. What Alcorn does is in his books, he goes and interviews people like from Auschwitz who talk about how more people who had faith going into those situations are stronger in their faith coming out than they were before it happened. And so what he ends up showing is the things that, that can't be the real reason for you, Dr. Ehrman, because um, that's not true. 
One of the stories he does is he went and interviewed a couple, uh, Scott and Janet Willis. Scott and Janet Willis were driving down the road on the freeway, and there was a guy who was a truck driver in front of them, wasn't very good at his job, and actually obtained his license, they found out later, through a bribe, so he shouldn't have even been driving the truck. But a piece of equipment fell off of his truck, hit their van, exploded the gas tank, killed six of their kids all at once. He interviewed them. He asked them about it. And he said, we don't weep like those who have no hope because we know what the scriptures tell us. Um, the righteous live by faith. And if our kids had faith in Christ, they're with Christ. It stinks. They, they were honest. Just like Habakkuk's honest in this passage. My legs, my legs trembled. My lips quivered. It was not easy. I, 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 I get the, what you're saying, God, and what you're doing, and I don't like it. And they said, we didn't have any strength. We threw ourselves on God. Scott, the husband, said uh, he contemplated suicide, so he was honest about how it felt. But he said he grew stronger in the trust of God's sovereignty. And, and Alcorn asked him the question, straight-up question, uh, that Ehrman er, would have accused them of. He says this, What would you say to those who reject Christian, the Christian faith because they say that no plan of God, nothing at all, could possibly be worth the suffering of your children and your suffering over all these years, 14 years later? Here's what Janet said back, quote, exact. Eternity is a long time. It will be worth it. Our children's suffering was brief, and they have the eternal joy of being with God. We and their grandparents have suffered since, but our suffering's been small compared to our, eternal, the, our children's eternal joy. Fourteen years is a short time compared to eternity. We'll be with them forever. What is Paul? Paul says it like this, Second Corinthians chapter four and verse seventeen. It says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Anything that happens to you here is temporary. You know what you get? Well we focus on the cross, it tells us ultimate deliverance. And that means no more crying, no more pain, no more cancer, no more divorce, no more betrayal, no more disease, none of that stuff. For eternity. So whatever happens here, that God would actually work in the midst of those struggles to drive us to himself, that we'd know him better, a greater sense of our source of joy, and no one can touch your source of joy, if it's God. Paul says it like this, Romans chapter 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, so anything, he lists some other stuff, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can take God away. And so whatever happens, he's the same yesterday, today, forever. He will be with you. Is he your source of joy? If he's your source of joy, then in the difficult times you turn to him, you focus on the cross, and you realize you can rejoice because you have your joy. So what's your source of joy? If it's anything other than God, I'm telling you, you have only one right response today, and it's to turn to God. Some of you might need to turn to him as Savior. Some of you have turned to him as Savior, but you let these false gods, you've been deceived, and you're being set up, and you're going to be destroyed because that's what the enemy wants to do to you. Lie, steal, kill, destroy you. Focus on the cross of Christ. Let Jesus Christ be your joy. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. Anything that's happening here, temporary, momentary, and God's using it for his eternal glory. You get to be used. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, Oh, strange as it is to say this. Thank you for when you have allowed us to go through difficult times that you've entrusted to us circumstances that will be used for your glory. I pray that we would turn to you. I pray that we would rejoice in you. I pray that your light would shine through us. I pray that people would see the way that we respond and, and 
and think it's baffling, think it's a mystery. And they would find the source of joy that we have that's you. I pray for any believers here that, that are finding their joy in anything other than you. I pray that you'd have them repent and turn to you right now. I pray if there are any here that are a believer, and today would be the day of salvation. At this very moment, they'd place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and what you did on the cross when you died to take the penalty for their sins. Jesus died to take your sin away. I mean, that's the only reason you're here today, so you can hear me say that. And you can place your faith in him. You can trust him to be your savior. If you need to trust him to be your savior, you can do it right now and just pray. Acknowledge your sin before God and ask Jesus to be your savior. And if you do that right now, I just ask you to mark it on your connection card before you leave. I want to pray for you this week. I'd love to be able to send you a Bible and help you grow in a relationship with Jesus. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people, as a church family. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.